You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Our first reader works as an environmental engineer, and she's in the process of getting a master's, and she tells me at the same time she's working on a new novel, which is about the race to Mars. It's called Child Left Behind, and so let's welcome Laura Nixon. Hi, everybody. Can you hear me okay? Can everybody hear me? Chapter one. When the two Air Force officers showed up at my apartment, I knew right away who they were and why they were there. I opened the door. There they stood in the hallway, uniformed, grave, official-looking. Just as I'd always imagined, they removed their hats. Hannah Song, the captain said. I said, my parents are dead. Yes, ma'am. He handed me a letter. There's been a terrible accident. I'm sorry for your loss. It's okay, I said. Thanks. And I took the envelope. After they left, I read the letter. I read it three times. Then I wadded it up, tossed it in the garbage, and finished making my dinner. That sounds harsh, but I hadn't seen my parents since I was eight. That's how old I was when they left with 14 other scientists and mission crew to populate the world's first permanent Mars base. The empty words of some official I'd never met about two people who'd chosen to leave me behind so they could live their own dream of exploring space, well, it was hard for me to work up much sense of loss. I had been slated to go. Did you know, I still have the home videos from our stint in Antarctica where we prepared for the mission. I have my NASA patch buried in a dusty box somewhere and the copy of Time with a picture on the cover of of seven-year-old me in a spacesuit. But agency officialdom chickened out at the last minute, afraid I'd be a burden to the crew, I'm sure, concerned about bad publicity (coughs) if anything should happen to me. Maybe I screwed up in Antarctica or I got in the way. I got frostbite once and lost part of a toe. Maybe that was it. My parents fought the decision, I give them that. There were petitions, arguments, pleas for hired ups to pull strings for us. I remember the sleepless nights, the fights they had, those weeks between when we got word and when they left. The night before the launch, I clung to my mom, begging her not to go as she held me and dripped silent tears into my hair. I recall my dad standing at the bedroom door, staring at me hard. His stare scared me. Years later, I told my grandfather about the stare, and Yeye told me my father was trying to burn my image into his mind and carry me to Mars with him that way. On my good days, I believe my grandfather's comforting words. I laid down uh, outside my parents' door that last night and tried to stay awake so they couldn't leave without me. But sometime during the dark hours, they slipped away. The next morning at 06.30, I held Nai Nai's hand and watched them rise into a, rise, ride a column of flame into the sky. My grandparents raised me. I rejected my parents' communications, and eventually they stopped trying. Ye Ye and Nai Nai died in a car wreck three years ago during my first semester in college. Since then, I've been alone. 
I started cutting up carrots and potatoes and tossed them into the steaming pot. Water droplets scalded my knuckles. Finally, I thought now, finally it'll be true. When people ask why I'm not going home for the holidays, and I tell them I have no family to go home to. Only then did I realize with a sickening shock that they hadn't said anything about Michael, my little Martian brother, the son that they had had up there. Scene break. This is a tradition. <laughs> the newscasts didn't say much. An explosion had occurred that afternoon, maybe an hour or two before I got my notification. Contact with the base had been lost. All members of the expedition were presumed dead. Then why hadn't the letter mentioned Michael? They showed video broadcasts from before the explosion, the usual chatter. I got a glimpse of my dad joking with one of the engineers as they worked on a repair in the power plant. It cut off mid-syllable, as if they'd simply lost the signal. They showed satellite images of the station, before, during, and after. One instant, a starfish-shaped starfish set of tunnels and domes. Excuse me. A silent, blinding flash, and then four domes in smoking ruins and damage to the fifth. They flashed photos of my parents and Michael, along with the other team members, indulged hysteria, intoned hagiographies. A Chinese Mars, Mars mission would arrive in less than a week, the news reporter said, just long enough after the disaster to be totally useless. Missions to Mars happened on the order of once every year or three. If there, were if there was going to be a mission on the heels of the disaster, why were they off by a week? God had a sick sense of humor. The team had offered to search for survivors, but no one paying attention thought it would do any good. The reporter's calls started rolling in the next day. I ignored them. There was, only, there was one person I did want to talk to, though. I had one NASA contact from childhood who still had connections, Colonel Peter Kubiak. He was retired, but had been pretty high up in the NASA echelon. He would know things others didn't. I called him. Uncle Pete? Hannah? A rustling. He didn't have video on, and his speech was muffled. It was three hours later on the East Coast, past 10 his time. I'd waked him. Yeah, sorry to bother you so late. No, no, it's okay. I'm glad you called. More rustling. I pictured him sitting up, rubbing his thinning hair. I heard him mumbling, it's Hannah. Can you tell me what happened? I asked. A long silence. I'll come out. I was planning to anyway. What's your address? I gave it to him and waited while he captured it. All right, he said. I'll be there tomorrow evening. Chapter 2. The next night, he found me working in the university library. Hey, shrimp. I whooped when I saw him peering through the door. He filled its frame. Uncle Pete! I leapt up and gave him a giant hug. He was tall and big-boned, but lean, a bald bundle of gristle and discipline. When do you get off work? He asked. My head's upset I still had a minute to go, but by the wall display, it was two past nine. Good enough for me. I logged out, shut down the overlay, and took off my net gear. Right now, let me grab my bag. We went to Dora's, a student hangout across the street from campus. I headed over to the bar and bought us a couple of beers while he chose a table. He started when I set a beer down in front of him, did the math, then settled. Christ, I'm getting old. I thought you just turned 20. Nope. I raised my mug. 21 last Thursday. Cheers. Cheers. He tapped his mug against mine and took a long drink. I drank more judiciously. At five foot even, it didn't take a lot of beer to knock me over. 
The waiter came, and Uncle Pete ordered onion rings and a buffalo cheddar burger. I ordered a half a Reuben and coleslaw. Once the waiter left, I gestured at the bag Uncle Pete had, had set in the empty seat. Is that your overnight bag? My place is tiny, but you're welcome to sleep on the couch. No need, thanks. I've already checked in at the Hyatt. Here, I have something for you. He, ruffled, he rummaged in the bag, pulled out a present, and thrust it across the battered wood table. Happy birthday. It was heavy, as big around as a large dinner plate, but bulkier and badly wrapped, with expensive foil paper and ribbons stuck on in odd configuration. He gave me a sheepish look. I was in a hurry. I tore it open and gasped. It was an orrery, a brass one with a glass dome. I'd seen it before when I was little, or one like it, on the mantle of his and Uncle Rhett's fireplace. I ran my hands over the dome. It was cold to the touch, still chilled, no doubt, from its journey in the cargo hold of the suborbital pop flight he had taken here. He started to show me where the switch was. I remember, I said with a smile, batting his hand away. An unwanted memory floated up of my mom showing me how it worked. I wound it up and flipped it on. The gears turned, clicking. The planets with their moons spun and swirled in their orbital dance. Mars had no moons, and Jupiter had only four. The orrery had been made before the advent of modern astronomy. It was made in 1858. By Pierre Frederick Ingold, the Swiss watchmaker for Abraham Lincoln. I know, you had it restored. I never forgot. I remember you letting me play with it when we visited you in Boston. I wouldn't leave it alone. Mom was sure I would break it. Or is this a replica? It's the original. You loved it so much. I was saving it for your graduation, but since I was coming out to see you now with your birthday so close, he shrugged. It seemed like a good idea. I eyed it. The thing had to be worth a fortune. I sat back, clutching my hands in my lap. It's too much, Uncle Pete. I can't take this. Uncle Pete's eyes gleamed, and he blew his nose in a big monogrammed handkerchief. Enough with the tears, I thought irritably, but that was unkind. Nonsense, he said. Always meant for you to have it. I leaned forward and spoke softly. Is it certain they're dead? I got the letter, but no one said anything about the kid, and the news reports aren't too forthcoming with the details. He looked at me over his mug. The silence stretched, and I grew uncomfortable. This has to remain confidential, he said. Of course. You're their child. You're his sister. You have a right to know. I tried not to flinch at his mention of Michael. His voice was soft, uninflected. His gaze turned inward. It was as if he was still trying to talk himself into whatever it was he wanted to say. I sighed. Uncle Pete, you didn't fly 3,000 miles to give me a birthday present. The waiter brought the food. <laughs> Perfect timing. Let's eat first, he said. I'll fill you in back at the hotel. I curbed my impatience and bit into one of his onion rings. At the hotel, we rode a glass elevator up to the penthouse. He opened the door to his suite, and I wandered in, staring around. My God, this is all yours? For the moment, he said, and dropped his bags. The living room alone was bigger than my whole apartment and smelled of new carpet. Through the partially open door, I could see an equally large bedroom beyond with a massive bed. The light-blanketed hills of San Francisco shone through the picture window, complete with the Golden Gate Bridge floating on a blanket of glowing fog. Too bad Uncle Rhett's not here. He'd love it. Uncle Pete tossed me a Diet Pepsi from the fridge in the kitchenette and dropped into the easy chair with a miniature bottle of whiskey. I curled up on the couch and popped my soda can open. Okay, I said, spill. What's going on? In answer, he templed his fingers, pressed them against his mouth, and looked at me. Dread rolled off him like waves of cold fog. 
My heart banged against my rib at that look. There was a question I hadn't asked myself. Why hadn't he called me after the accident? Why had it been some nameless Air Force officer who told me about my parents' deaths? I hadn't allowed myself to wonder, but that question and its answer rose together now in my thoughts. It was the same reason he was sitting here now. He hadn't called because he hadn't wanted to tell me. He hadn't wanted to tell me this. The best way, he said, is to show you. He tapped the controls on the coffee table's edge. I snapped, snatched up my Diet Pepsi as the glass surface swung up to vertical. It took me a moment to understand what I was seeing. Things were moving through a haze. I realized it was objects flying through smoke, the sound of glass, metal, something, some things, striking hard surfaces. <laughs> the date stamp in the lower right corner was from the time of the blast on the Mars station. My skin crawled. Uncle Pete was showing me the disaster. My brother's face appeared, dirty, white showing around his irises, chin quivering. He would be 12 now. He had dad's dark brown eyes and epicanthic folds, his warm dark skin, but he also had a narrow Caucasian nose and his hair was auburn like mom's. He had her pointed elven chin, her angular bony build. I had mom's hazel eyes, her full mouth, her pale skin, but everything else came from dad's side of the family, the straight black hair, flat nose, round face, the soft round edges. It was as if someone had taken all mom and dad's parts, thrown them into a jar, shaken them up, and then divvied them between the kid and me. Michael was my inverse, my opposite, the Auntie Hannah. Hello? His voice shook. I could see how his gaze and balance shifted, that, from how his balance, gaze and balance shifted, that he was messing with controls. Mom? What just happened? A long pause. Dad? Are you there? Another pause. Colonel Manikoff? Pause. Anyone? After another moment, he moved off camera, and I heard scuffling, breathing, and other noises. Uncle Pete forwarded through several minutes of this. Nothing more happens until about four minutes in, here. He slowed the video stream to normal and pointed. That's the elbow of his spacesuit in the lower right quadrant, now the edge of his helmet. He's suiting up to go out. Uncle Pete worked his controls, and the edges, images jerked and stuttered. This is from three quarters of an hour later. Michael was back at the control, his tousled little boy head sticking out of the suit's neck ring. His skin was ashen and his voice quavered. Houston, mom and dad are dead. I think, I think they're all dead. His voice rose sharply. I'm on emergency power and air now. Life sciences is the only dome left and it's damaged. I patched it the best I could, but it's got a slow leak I can't find high up. What do I do? I found myself halfway across the room on my feet. I had nearly bolted out before I even knew what I was doing. Now I paced, but I couldn't force my gaze away from the image on the screen. Uncle Pete fast-forwarded again. Mostly the kid just sat there waiting for a response from Earth. At some point, he had a rabbit in his lap who he clutched and petted in fast-forward motion. Over an hour must have passed for him. My God, what must that have been like? When Uncle Pete slowed the stream down, slowed the stream again, the, the rabbit was gone. Michael had stripped off the top of his suit and long johns and was struggling with a big syringe and a bottle of some brown syrupy fluid. Tears streaked the dirt on his face as, and his, lip was quiver, his lips were quivering once more. I could see his goose flesh. He was shaking so hard he could barely control his hands. Houston was just now getting back to him. He should sit tight, they said. The engineers were working on the problem and would have some answers for him soon. That had to be a lie. 
What could they possibly do to help? What's he doing now, I asked, giving himself a shot? He managed to control the shaking long enough to administer the drug into a vein in the crook of his elbow. I could tell from how he did it that he'd done this sort of thing before, and I wondered where he had gotten the practice. Excuse me. He made a noise, a little cry, as he stuck the needle in, but found the courage to push the plunger in anyway. Then the boy stumbled over to the console again. He shrugged his overalls back on and pressed the seam shut. He picked up the rabbit. Houston, there isn't enough air and power to last until I can be rescued. I've been thinking it over, and this is the only thing that will work. I've just given myself an injection of the stuff Mom gave to the rabbit that lived. Maybe I'll still be alive when you get here. His voice broke. Please hurry. The transmission ended. Uncle Peak looked at me. Neither of us said anything for a moment. You're his last remaining relative. I thought you should know. The transmission would have had to have been from yesterday afternoon. It took me a long time, but I worked up the nerve to ask, is he still alive? Uncle Pete exhaled for the moment. We're still getting biotelemetry on him, and we've since used the ROVs to find and plug the leak, so conditions aren't worsening anymore, but they're bad enough. This, there are solar collectors on the roof. Temperatures in the dome won't drop to ambient, but the collectors alone aren't enough to bring the temperatures back up this time of year. Oxygen partial pressures is at 135 millibars, well below where it needs to be for him to survive. Carbon dioxide partial pressure is near 8 millibars, toxic levels. And if all that doesn't kill him, the humidifiers will stop functioning in a couple of days, which will basically desiccate his lungs. Most likely he'll die during the night. But even if he actually got enough of the drug into his vein, and that's a big if, he's no medic. The drug itself will probably kill him. It was not ready for human trials, and it's unlikely he knew how to control properly for dose. He leaned forward on his knees and gave me a terrifying look. But if he got the drug injected properly, if the drug by some miracle does what it was designed to do, and if he didn't get too much or too little of it, he might make it until the Chinese expedition arrives. What was it? What did he inject himself with? He pressed his lips together. I'm afraid that part is classified. Let's just say it may help him survive a few days till help gets there, if we're lucky. But if he does, it hands us another big problem. I had stalled in place, but now I started pacing again, digging my fingers through my hair. What has this got to do with me, I thought. Seriously, what could I possibly do for him? What do you mean? The Chinese expedition reaches Mars orbit in four days. They expect to arrive at Williamson Station as soon as six days from now. The mission engineers have programmed our ROVs to destroy all sensitive materials. But now that he's injected himself, Michael himself has become a living experiment one that we would not want to fall into Chinese hands. Rage rose in me. I wanted to attack Uncle Pete, to launch myself at him, rip chunks of flesh from his face. My, my grandmother used to say that a dragon slept in me. I never knew what she meant before till I felt it stir in my belly. He saw it in my face and raised his hands. Easy, Hannah, it's not me saying this, it's our government. I'm risking jail telling you all this, but it isn't right keeping this from you. He stood and took me by the arms. I want to help him if he lives, if I can. I shoved him away, staggered back. You don't get it. I don't care about him. I gestured savagely at the frozen image of my brother. The words tore their way free of me. He's nothing to me. 
Why did you burden me with this? I hope he dies. I bolted from the suite and slammed the door, and I stood there for five minutes in the hall, clutching my mouth while my own words rocked, knocked around inside my head. I wished desperately I had the courage to knock on the door and take it all back, or that he would know I was standing there and open the door to me again. I wanted to cry, to weep for my dead parents who had left me behind so long ago out of fear that I would end up where my little brother was right now. Oh yes, I knew the truth, however much I hated them for it, and I wanted to weep for my little brother for what was happening to him right now, but no, not just that. It was also because I envied him. Despite everything, I cried for those 12 years he'd had with them, years that should have been mine. I wanted to break down and sob and let Uncle Pete, the only person in the world now who knew the whole truth of my history, comfort me, but I couldn't. Finally, in defeat, I walked down the hall to the elevator, dry-eyed and ashamed. Child Left Behind, Laura Mixum. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.